You are very welcome to the Johnny Fallon podcast, where this week we are taking a look back at the big stories from the month of April. What was driving the news agenda, everything from vaccines to resignations, right through to voter databases. What was it that the Irish people were talking about and what was driving the debate? And a little look to see what exactly might be going on in the minds of the people who are in charge of all this and trying to navigate it and how are we going to react over the coming months as some of these stories develop and get legs. So sit back and uh, take it easy for the next little while as we take a quick look back at everything that has driven that news agenda and we try to figure out what the month of April actually did for the Irish political landscape. So thank you for joining me once again for another uh, edition of the podcast. Now, first of all, a little bit of housekeeping. I know some people have been asking about our referendum series and when we're getting to the next episode on that. And we are indeed getting to that quite soon. Um, It will be it is in the works. A little bit of research on the next set of referendums, of which there were a couple in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, which we're going to look at in in one episode together. So please bear with us on that. It is in the works it takes a little bit of time to put them together and uh, get them get them out so please uh Bear with us and thank you for your patience and, of course, for listening and being so interested in them. It is great and we will get that out as soon as possible. Right now, we're taking a look at our regular news analysis and uh, what has been driving the news agenda. And this was quite an interesting month in April and we've, we've quite a lot to cover here, but we're going to try to break it down into uh, a couple of really big stories that uh, happened. And of course, you can't get to everything, but we'll get to, to most of, of what, what we can. Um, there were some big stories here because we got everything this month from, of course, the COVID and vaccines and everything else that's been driving that. You know, it's fascinating when you think about that we're doing this podcast and, and it's a political-based podcast, yet for so much of the news we're talking about here is, is, is you know, COVID, vaccines, health, and we've been brought into areas where you could say, well, we're not the experts in. And, and it's a little bit like what's happening to government. For, for the last year, you know, they're governing. They're, they're, they're doing what a government has to do, uh, managing a crisis. But in that crisis, they're not actually the experts. And they are looking over at Nefes and uh, anybody in that health uh, portfolios in trying to get a handle on well this is what we think we should do this is what the country needs this is us balancing all these things but ultimately somebody else is the expert here who's who's going to make us really understand what's happening and day to day that's an unusual situation because yes it's true that governments tend to govern at a high level um and then you have doctors who run the health service or whatever and the teachers and education and you don't need to be the expert to run it. But that's because generally you're able to take a long term view and it can be quite good that the person who's taking that long term view, that strategic view at ministerial level is not ingrained in the battles of one group against another and is embedded in a sector. And that can be a very positive thing. But in a situation like you've got with COVID, you get people who are, uh, they've been forced 
they can take a strategic view of COVID because you're, you're talking about a few months ahead, a few weeks ahead. You know, at best, they've been talking about next year for the last year. So it's not really possible to be very strategic about it. And if you were, you'd probably end up talking about, well, what are the impacts of this in the next couple of years? And, and therefore, let's talk more about the economy. And that draws you in to direct conflict with the people who are closing the economy, who are saying we need to do this to save lives for the day-to-day reasons. And that's difficult. It's difficult for a government to actually do. You're governing with your hands tied behind your back a lot of the time. So it is interesting because you're seeing that uh, at, at that level and, and, and right through our media, right through our political correspondence and indeed like a podcast like this, you see that same effect. You know, we're not getting to talk about the normal day to day politics that we might because we're trying to see everything through this prism of which, you know, we're not the health experts, we're not the health correspondents and therefore it's a little bit difficult at times to, to find out, well, what's safe to say and what should we say? even though maybe we don't understand it entirely. So you're seeing a lot of that with government and a lot of that throughout April, but we had some really interesting stories that we're going to touch there. Of course, we had resignations, which we're going to touch on. That means by-elections, which is great news, of course, for the podcast, because that does mean we are going to be doing some by-election specials later uh, in in the year as we approach that Um by-election days and of course that's great news because it allows us get back to what we do best of the podcast here which is actually talk about elections results coverage you know the, the commentary and taking some some uh, views and analysis from that and, and applying it to what might happen and of course we'll be a campaign and we get to analyze the campaign so we got lots of material there it's it's wonderful to be back in the business of some kind of elections uh, we also had big news up the north um, when Arlene Foster has decided to step down and that is going to have a huge impact, I think, on politics there. Um, not so much even just the person and who it is, it's, it's just what it signifies across Northern Ireland politics and where it's going. And we saw, of course, a month where there was violence, where there were problems with the interaction from the UK side of things. Boris Johnson's distracted by his own issues in, in the UK. All of this uh, points to so some, some worrying trends in, in Northern Ireland uh, that we, we have to be aware of. And of course, it was a difficult enough month for Sinn Féin too with our own voter databases uh, being analysed. And we're going to take a brief look at that as well. So more than enough stuff to actually get through. Um, and more than enough that, that uh, is actually, I suppose, more than enough kind of things that are, are long term, that are going to plant the seeds of what happens in the coming months and, and how these political landscapes are going to be shaped by what's happening uh, at the moment. The long term effects are going to be very much uh, felt for, for months to come, if not years so let's uh, dive straight in and let's look at some of those stories and what has uh, actually happened to them. And the first of those is, of course, to look at the vaccine story and the COVID story. And I don't know how you want to put a title on it, but it's been the big news item. And it was again in the month of April. And to truly understand, um, I suppose, what, what happened or where we're at, let's, let's take a little, a little step back to the beginning of the month because we have a government who began to set some targets, some targets about how many people would be vaccinated. 
Um, and they said, look, you know, that was hopefully by the end of June, I think they were saying about 80% people vaccinated. Um, and that was dependent upon supply. And we've talked about this kind of thing of, of giving a promise and, and the figures and how we have to understand a little bit and whether or not people can be forgiving about it. Now, the government over... Things went a little bit wrong at the end of last summer and indeed into to Christmas when reopening didn't actually work out the way they had planned. And then cases rose hugely over uh, January and into February and new variants played a big part in that too. So here's the thing. Um, over the last while now, you had a government who were f- who was afraid to actually put a target on anything. And that made it difficult for the public because... It was an endless kind of thing. We might never come out of lockdown. That's how it begins to feel for people. And you're asking us to stay home. You're asking us to put our shoulder to the wheel here. But we don't know what we're actually trying to do. So, you know, it, it, put it this way. It's, a, it's like if you get a group of people and you say to them, you want them to push a large object, I don't know, a trailer, to you know and, and you ask them you just say to them line up behind this trailer and push it it's very hard to get the best out of those people if that's all you do now if you take that same group of people and say look come here see this hill we need to get this trailer to the top of that hill can you see it when we're up at the top of that hill then we'll all sit down and relax so everybody get behind the trailer start pushing now and then we can analyze where we're at or how we get how far how well we're doing as we go you're going to get a much better reaction than if those people never see where they're pushing the trailer to. Because people go, why am I doing this? What's the purpose in it? How long do I have to push this for? There's no point to it. And it's a little bit like that with COVID, or has been. Um, now, the government did get back on track, trying to trying to say, listen, we're doing it. Now, they didn't give much in indication in the earlier stages of the month as to what was going to happen with reopening and dates but at least they were moving in that direction so the first thing i want to say here is that i think we do have to be careful it is easy really really easy to be critical of course when a minister or a government sets a target they set themselves up for the potential that they might miss it now i think for the vast majority of people it's not the end of the world if a target is missed. They just want to know, is it badly missed? Was it your fault that it was missed? Was it incompetence that it was missed by? If it's something that's clearly kind of outside your control, people genuinely are forgiving. The people who aren't forgiving are your opponents. Well, obviously, that's their job, is to tell you you're incompetent and it was your fault and you should never have done this. That doesn't mean the public in general believes that. Uh, you can get criticism in the media. But all of those things, that's where you expect politicians to rise above it and be able to keep a focus and say, listen, what's said in the media or what's said on social media or what's said by my opponents is not necessarily what everybody thinks. Um, and that's important that they do that because if they don't, they do end up cocooning into, I'm not committing to anything. And that's the bit that the public will really dislike. Now, uh, all of that's important because... I do think that there has been some criticism leveled at the government, which at times has been harsh because some of this stuff is outside of their control. They can only get so many vaccines. Now you could talk about, oh, will you want them to go outside of that and buy vaccines elsewhere? 
yeah, we've covered that kind of issue before in, in previous podcasts, maybe what could or couldn't have been done, but ultimately wouldn't be making a huge difference. And for most of us, and when I look at these things, I try to think, why do I just feel if I'm just, just me and I'm not you know, picking a, a, a politician saying they could do this better or that better. How am I just feeling about vaccinations and everything? And you know what? I'm not absolutely devastated if it's the end of July rather than the end of June when we're vaccinated. I'm not even going to be too devastated if it's the end of August. But I do want to know that we're working absolutely flat out to do that. And if I can get there, great. Once I know then also that when that vaccination happens and people are there and we've got 80% or whatever they're aiming for of the country vaccinated, that normality definitely is going to return with small changes and usual precautionary measures. But that in the main, this is going to be back to some kind of sense that, yeah, normal life returns. And that's kind of... It's one of those things that we need to know and, and there's nothing wrong. In business or in life, targets become problematic sometimes because targets should be ambitious. And anybody working in business will tell you this. You know, there's no point in having a target if it doesn't really stretch people. If you don't aim to do sometimes what seems impossible because that's how you find out just what you're capable of. However, if that target comes with some kind of stick that says, you know, if you fail to meet that target, then you're in big trouble. So for instance, in business, if you turn around and say to somebody, here are your targets, you will only get your pay increase if you reach the agreed target that's set. What you're going to get over time is people negotiating targets downwards because they don't want to fail to get their pay increase. So targets naturally become less ambitious. And then you get this kind of excusing of that by people saying, let's have a realistic discussion about targets. And you know what? Realistic can really be the enemy of being the best because realistic targets take so much into account and they leave a little bit of contingency. And in the end, over time, nobody is really pushing themselves because they want to ensure that I can still make that target and I allow myself room to make that target. Real progress is usually made by the person who's going outside of that. But people won't do that if there's a stick there that tells them you're going to lose things. I mean, I want to have a six pack for next summer when I do go on holidays. Well, not 2021, 2022, when holidays are allowed again, uh, you know, out to go to the sunshine. I could say, well, look, here I am a year out from it now. I want to have a six pack. By the time that comes round, that's a highly ambitious aim for me right now to put down. But no harm in it. And maybe I can do some exercises and lots of whatever to try and get that six pack uh, in place for my holidays. But ultimately, if you then tell me I can only go on holidays if I have a six pack, that's going to say, well, well, can we define maybe what a six pack looks like? And maybe it's just, you know, necessarily, uh, maybe it's just a flat stomach. Now, I don't need to be rippled with muscles. I'll immediately go and negotiate it down. So I'm going to say it's more important that I actually get there than I have some fabulous target set. We all do it. We do it in our everyday lives. We negotiate down targets when we think there's a price to be paid. So be careful. Be careful of how we hold politicians to account over missed targets. 
we have to understand whether or not that was within their control. And we have to understand that sometimes if the target is ambitious, that's a good thing. And if we come close enough to it, that's a good thing too. It's better than having lowered targets that never really push uh, a department or a minister or, or, or even uh, the, the agencies around them. So I want to put that out there because I think that is something that I think we need to be careful of in this crisis. We should be aiming, aiming to do things that seem impossible. We should be aiming to be the best. But in order to do that, we have to be conscious that, you know, certain things will happen along the way and they're out of control of a politician or a minister or a government and governments. We shouldn't be just turning around and then going, oh, well, you failed, so get off the pitch. Because over time, we will get that lessening of, of government targets. Anyway, government decided um, this month that you know they were going to start in a new phase of communication uh, where they were going to start setting targets again, begin opening up, talking about opening up society and business and where it was going to go. Now, that started with the whole story of vaccines. And one of the things that's quite interesting about the vaccines uh, and I got a lot of messages about this and I was looking for, for um, stories for, for uh, what people felt was a priority in this month. One of the ones that a few people mentioned was actually the vaccines and the whole thing about the blood clots and what happens with blood clots. And here's again where I say to you the difficulty for uh, subjects like this, because I'm not the health expert. If you want to know what's the story with blood clots and whatever, then you know, you're going to need to listen to a health podcast somewhere by somebody who's actually a qualified professional in that. What I can say is that I know why some people were raising it, that there was a comms issue here. And people struggle to understand why is it that um, we had such hype about the vaccines, uh, such problems about it at government level because of this story of blood clots, when, you know, the contraceptive pill... Um, that many women have to take is a much, much higher chance of developing blood clots than anything from these vaccines. So, you know, why then are we kind of stalling on the vaccines while there's other products out there that, that could do, you know, have a much bigger impact in this? So there is a question, how is it that government wasn't communicating that or able to communicate that? And that's where it gets a little bit tricky. So I do think it's worth covering because it was a big story with the, with AstraZeneca and with Johnson & Johnson, these vaccines that were really people were hoping were going to come in and do, be, do a huge workload here uh, for for the, the governments trying to roll out vaccines. But one of the things is I think you need to understand a little bit of how the state agencies here are working because you have uh, different levels, of course, of organisation. This can sometimes be part of the problem with politics, that we have so many layers and people are trying to figure out who's actually responsible for what. And it's not all down to a minister at any point. And of course, when it comes to things like this, you have we have the Health Products Regulatory Authority, who is the Irish regulator. Um, they do a really good job. Um, they're the people responsible. You know, every time you open a packet of 
tablets, paracetamol, whatever, and you get that little docket inside that says, here are the warnings, possible side effects. All drugs have side effects and they tell you about them in that little leaflet. If you're like me, you probably just never read the leaflet, but you know, it, it, you should, you should, because it does tell you important information. And uh, sometimes afterwards, you only read it when you begin to feel a bit tired or you get a headache and then you read the leaflet and says, yeah, you know, possible side effects is you might get a headache. And then you, you, you calm down about it. But they do give that important information. Now, the Health Products Regulatory Authority are part of the European Medicines Agency. They're the Irish arm of it, if you like. And they all combine their data from all of those regulators across Europe into the European Medicines Agency, who then says that this drug is safe and this drug is effective. And it has to do those things for them. Excellent. Makes perfect sense. So... When the EMA takes it from the HPRA in Ireland and all the other agencies and they all sit down and they go and say, yes, this drug is safe and effective, safe to use, and it will do what it's meant to do. Therefore, you know, that's where you get the risks outweigh any possible side effects that come with all medicines. But then you have what's called the National Immunisation Advisory Council, NIAC, who are also responsible for major immunization programs and that's because you could say vaccines are not always like other uh, products in that yes the contraceptive pill or any of these other things we're talking about you know your paracetamol there's an option to take that while discussing it with your doctor if you are doing an immunization program you're telling people to get vaccinated they still have a choice, but you are telling them to get vaccinated. You are offering it as part of the state is rolling it out. Therefore, there are fears that this has other implications, possible legal implications if something goes wrong and so on and so forth. So these guys at NIAC take a, a bigger view, if you like, and they look at potential risks maybe to the state and all a whole load of other information, different disciplines coming together. And then they decide, actually, let's only use it for this group or that group. And that goes to a minister. Ministers don't get to overrule that kind of information. You couldn't. So that's just how many layers these things go through. And then, you know, inevitably you'll have someone saying, oh, look, they're just taking a chance on it. Uh, you know, don't trust them. When you know how much, how hard and how many layers there are to things like regulation, you think generally these things have to be pretty safe because they go through so many hoops, but there will always be risks. It did create a problem, though, for um the, the Irish government this month because we started off the month in a real bit of a downer. AstraZeneca wasn't hasn't delivered in the the numbers with the eu we're all aware of that and the contracts and then there were problems as to who it could be administered to johnson and johnson vaccine hoping that's going to pick up the slack now that has to be administered to certain age groups as well that's the recommendation now we have a problem and it did start off the month as one of these <clears throat> these kind of downer stories that maybe the targets are going to all be missed again um that all changed uh, a little bit later in the month when of course and this is where it brings it back to the politics of it a phone call from Ursula von der Leyen who says you know what um, we've got a new deal with Pfizer uh, BioNTech who this is the vaccine that has really been the saviour of Europe and, and many of the European governments uh, and indeed the EU it's been the one that has really come to the rescue for them 
uh, and no doubt too for the Irish government too because they get this uh, extra allocation of this that Pfizer are going to be able to deliver and of course that changes the mood of everything. Now little uh, story that the Irish Independent covered within that which they say Micheál Martin did a cabinet meeting um, gets a phone call takes it that's uh, Ursula she says you know listen going to give you some of these extra vaccines he says brilliant news thank you so much now he goes back into the cabinet and he says I've received some very good news but I don't want to tell you all because you know I'm afraid of it leaking and apparently, according to the Irish Independent, Leo Vradka then says, oh, Taoiseach, is this the news about the extra allocation of uh, the vaccines, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines? Because if it is, that's already out there in the news now. Um, and it's just an interesting little view into politics and the cabinet that, that I want to explore a little bit because it, it points to so many things in that story alone. First of all, on the vaccine thing, it was great news. It lifted everybody's spirits after a day when people thought we're going to miss the targets, reopening's going to be pushed back, all of that kind of thing. It lifted spirits to think, hold on, we're back on track. And these vaccine companies, Pfizer, BioNTech in particular, seem to be able to deliver this safely and at the volume that's really necessary. Um, and that was great for everyone. But within the cabinet, there was that interesting little interplay, and it's been going on for ages now. Um, and it's important because it brings us to this whole story as we went on in the month of Ireland reopening and what was going to happen when we reopen. So in that little interplay, you get Micheál Martin as the Taoiseach getting this phone call, an important phone call. Now, clearly, the information was also going out elsewhere. Whether that's been released to the public, to the media, to other ministers, to other departments. It does point, first of all, to that changing world of politics. There was a time, there was a time, you know, when maybe it would be we have to ring each of the country's leaders. And that's a very important thing to do. And then when we've them rang, there'll be some time to discuss it. And then we'll be releasing it elsewhere. That doesn't seem to have been the case. Clearly, the information was out. It was allowed to be put out there. Um, and it shows perhaps how that old heads of state uh, level at the EU is coming under pressure and maybe not getting the respect it once did. The second thing is, of course, Michal Martin coming back into a cabinet meeting. This is the cabinet. This is the people who run the country. This is everything. It's got cabinet confidentiality. It's 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 supposed to be your your brightest and best politically are all sitting around that table, making the decisions that affect all of our lives. And Michal Martin actually walks back in. According to this, says, "I good news, but I don't know if I should tell you because I don't want it to leak." Number one, that shows an incredible fear of leaking, a credible lack of trust. Normally, a Taoiseach should be able to say I'm in control of this cabinet and if something is out here that I didn't want to happen even in a coalition even in your, your coalition partners tend to be terrified that you know we could upset the whole government here it speaks to the fact that Michal Martin felt I can't do this because I can't really trust that they respect me enough that they're going to actually hold off from leaking this that's problematic 
uh, it some points to something very deeply problematic in cabinet. It also points to the fact that Michal Martin was inclined to start to walk into a cabinet again this high powered group of people running the country and say to them, "I heard some news, but I'm not going to tell you yet." It's like, you can't do that. You can't just like walking into this playground and saying, "I've got a secret, but I don't want to tell anyone." Uh, you know, the first thing everyone wants to know is what's the secret. You know, how long were you going to keep it a secret for? Um, information is power, perhaps. But anyway, it was all undermined and undermined at the other side by Leo Varadkar, who clearly has the feeling at the cabinet table then of, oh, T-shirt, I already know what you're saying here, you know. And then you get, who's who's actually in control? Who, you know, is this just, you know, that where's the information come from? And is it just it's out there in the public and you're just too behind the times now, T-shirt? You know, it's already out there, you know. It does speak volumes for how the cabinets run, uh, but it also speaks volumes, I think, for how people have positioned themselves as we have gone over the course of this month. And I think that's an interplay that I want to, to explore a little bit uh, in a moment, because I do think there's been quite a lot of jostling for position between Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar ongoing over the last couple of months. But in this scenario, it really began to play out. Uh, I think over, over the course of the month, you could see where they're going to position themselves. Now, um, once we got that, once we got into that news, though, and, and that little interplay played out, we got the vaccine kind of story back on track. And then we started. Continue. Now, here's the thing with the rollout. People have been critical of the rollout all over the shop. And I'm hesitant now to be critical because we still look to be, as far as we can say, I mean, look, ah. Uh, I'm not the expert in the logistics of all this that's going to say to you we could actually do it in a month when, you know, there seems to be the honest basis that when the the vaccine comes in, within a week, we're getting it out. Now, I know I haven't seen the army deployed. We haven't seen, so maybe we could be doing more, but do we need to? Do we have the supply to do more with? And I think in general, people are quite happy with the time frame looking towards summer and saying, yeah, but get the vaccine out. And then at least by the end of this summer, we'll be done. People will be vaccinated. And then we can look at being permanently back to some kind of everyday life. Now, that's one of those things that... I think a lot of people miss as they say, listen, we're, we're the league tables of vaccines have had lots of criticism of it. I've been a critic of some of the things the government has done here in the vaccine rollout too. However, I think right now there is a sense that we understand. I think the move into allowing it by age group has actually helped. I think people can understand the age groups a little bit better. You know, you're starting with the over 70s, then 60 to 70, then 50 to 60, you know. I think people are getting an understanding of, yeah, I can see where we all fit and I can see how fast the rollout is or how slow it is, depending on your perspective, in terms of where I fit in it. And therefore, they feel OK about it because I think we're, we're actually getting this rollout pretty quickly, all in all, uh, in, their, in people's minds, because it is going to be summer. And whether it's June or July, I don't think people are panicking about that. I don't get that sense. But I do think they feel, just make sure... You don't muck any of this up and you have the facilities in place and you have the people ready to keep those vaccines going. And maybe it's just a bit of euphoria for people feeling that, you know, it's all going well now. And so, well, at least it's going better and it's a little bit of holding a breath. 
but they are positive about it and that's important and it's important for the government in particular that they remain positive about it um so look i i i i'm hesitant right now as we sit here and and look at this to be overly critical of the vaccine rollout because look i think it does come back to one simple point of analysis can we get the vaccines out or are we sitting with them stockpiled and failing to you know get them out quickly enough and right now for me and any information i can see the vaccines come into the country and they're out within a week i think people are going to find that fairly reasonable even if they think maybe the small things could be done better it's not the worst uh, rollout that they've ever seen of anything and if that stays on track i think people are going to be fairly okay with that now back though to the personalities and what's been actually happening and we saw that a lot because reopening is the key thing here and the government did announce its big reopening plan uh, at the the end of the month and of course that's i suppose the biggest news we've all had um and let's start with the announcement itself. First of all, the government did its usual thing that I have been a critic of in the past and will always be, which is rather than actually getting to some kind of decisions on this and getting some things out there and moving quickly on it, they're having meeting after meeting after meeting. They come to some kind of conclusion. They tell us all what the conclusions are days in advance and then they announce it, um, which takes away something of it. But anyway, that's the way business is done. Michal Martin um, made the speech on the news and again I've been a critic for a long time of a lot of the speeches not just of Michal Martin's Leo Radker's as well um, that have been that have, that have I suppose given us the signpost throughout this crisis of where we are uh, and I've kind of always they've lacked a vision they've been beset by this pragmatic practical approach to i'm just going to give you some information now let me not be getting into anything fancy with my words words do affect people and particularly at times like this people need words tone you know every inflection that you make impacts people in a speech like that they're looking for that that is the moment of leadership that's one of the few touch points you get with the public and you don't always get a chance like this for speeches like this in these kind of times. So I'm going to say that I thought Michal Martin's speech was on the positive side, I think, uh, for, for once. I think after a few poorer outings, he got the tone right. He was a little bit more energetic in the delivery. He was a little bit more, he got a balance. It was a tough speech because he wanted to be upbeat and he wanted to be positive about reopening. He's delivering some good news, but he has to be careful not to make it sound like, oh, this is within my gift to give you this. And he has also to be careful that people don't go, oh, right, it's all over. Um, and I think he did that quite neatly within the speech. And it was well crafted from that point of view of a message of giving some hope to people, but keeping a lid a little bit on that and not getting absolutely euphoric about it. And also for himself and trying to balance that you know, I, that this isn't a gift to you. It is reopening. It is the time and the conditions we're in. So it was it was it was a good speech, I felt, uh, certainly as regards that. And again, we have to be careful here because it's the easiest thing in the world to criticize every speech of a politician we don't like. It's easy for people to say everything that politician or political party does is bad. The real test 
of whether you're analysing something is whether or not sometimes you find yourself saying, actually, that's bad, but that's good. If you find yourself, and let me just give this warning to everybody out there as we look at politics. If you find yourself always saying everything that a person does or a politician does or whoever is bad and is negative and you never can find the good word to say about them, then that's probably an indication not so much on them, but on your analysis of them. Because no matter what, people will do certain things right and you've got to be able to find what it is that they are doing right or what they have done right and then you know you're perhaps being fair and you're analysing it correctly if all you can see is incompetence and you know being useless and every speech and every word that they say is poor then you know maybe maybe it's you and how you're looking at it that's been been twisted by your own uh, prism that you see all this through so anyway uh, decent speech, decent start. What did it do for all of us though? Well, I know, look, you could be downbeat about it and say, and some people were, some people were saying, look, you know, big deal. We're getting to go, you know, county to county. Wow. Um, we, we, we're going to be drinking outdoors in Ireland where it's going to rain. Come on, you know, what's the big deal? And you saw some stuff from people like that being not impressed by it. But I think in a lot of these circumstances, it's whether or not you choose to be impressed because you got to have something. And I know I certainly chose to be positive and happy about it because I needed it. I needed the feeling. And look, I make no secret. Worst thing for me uh, in, in, in last year and indeed for this year will be the fact that it can't go abroad for my holiday. I I've just it's one of those things that absolutely guts me every time because I don't switch off, I can't switch off and I just don't enjoy the, the whole thing of being in Ireland right throughout the year. I like to get that complete breakaway. But you know what, it's the times we live in. We can't do it, that's it. So what? There's bigger things that people will say will happen. It'll be my moan, it'll continue to be my moan and that's just fine. But you got to get on with it. And therefore you look for something. And yeah, I might not be thrilled or saying, well, OK, I'm going around Ireland. But I'm choosing to be happy about it because you need it. You need to feel, yeah, this is the step. It is a step on an important journey back to normality. Um, and therefore, I think, you know, the country was lifted. I certainly took my chance and played some music, danced around the kitchen a bit as I made the dinner and thought, you know what, life isn't so bad. And I think we all need to feel that a little bit. So from that point of view, I think the tone from the government was strong, it was good, and it gave people hope. Now, positioning of the politicians within this has been really interesting to look at. Three figures I wanted to take a look at in particular. We have Michal Martin as Taoiseach. We have Leo Varadkar as Thánaiste. And we have the Minister for Health, uh, um, Stephen Donnelly here. So what is it we're going to look at? Let's take Stephen Donnelly at the outset. Again, this has been a really difficult time for Stephen Donnelly. Uh, he has really found himself thrust into a department that works very different to many others. He has found himself pushed to the limit in a role, uh, both communications-wise and indeed uh, technically, uh, because it's, it's all about this one thing. And none of us can be an expert in this one thing, so he has to go with advices here and there and then try to unpick where are the points where he should be applying the pressure, where he should be doing something different. And, you know, there's a couple of things that I think in, in looking at Stephen Donnelly, he is, I think Stephen Donnelly has always been a politician. From he arrived on the scene in Ireland, 
Stephen was seen as somebody who arrived here, you know, in Irish politics at, at around the 2011 time, building up his, his career very much on the back of that financial crisis. And, of course, you know, he was very critical of the government's handling of that financial crisis. That did mean that for many people, uh, Stephen Donnelly was seen as somebody who was more economics-based. And I think he is very strong in that area. I think he has always pushed himself to be more than just economics, that he wanted to be someone who was seen as having a real strong social conscience as well, and that that was where his 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 uh, desires lay, and that he definitely wasn't right-wing. Indeed, he was maybe a bit more left-wing. And that's been what I think Stephen Donnelly has tried to do over the last decade or so, and it's been a tough journey. Because when people do associate just being strong with one thing, can you just make them think you're strong in all these other areas? I think that's difficult. Um, and I think, unfortunately for Stephen Donnelly, when he's been pushed into this ministry, I still think he would have been a better minister in a business portfolio than this particular one. However, <clears throat> this is the one that was on offer. This is the one he took up. And you know what? It can be good to have somebody like that. And I think he was eager to go into this role and prove himself within it. But it's been so tough. It's been so tough for him to actually get a foothold and get... And one of the reasons it's tough is because he never seems to be in absolute control. Because this crisis is so major, he doesn't have control of the actual overall messaging. You have a Taoiseach and you have a Taunashta who are both interested in discussing the messaging on this all the time. Who always seem to be above his pay grade uh, as Minister for Health. When it comes to announcing news, good news, giving out details, you know, even when we, we covered this in the last podcast, when we came back that he was asking, let's look at, you know, um, I, I, that he'd asked the department to look at things like where else could they get vaccines and all of that kind of thing. And then a day or two later, the Taoiseach admits, well, we've actually looked at it all. It just seems to be that kind of difficult role where he has two people and Taoiseach and Tarnished jostling for position on the same kind of topic that he's ultimately responsible for and look the department of health i have some sympathy for him because it's a bit of a beast at the best of times even never mind right now to control and be in charge of now um what he's had in that time are some difficult communications outings where he's really struggled to get the message across in a coherent way in a way that people really relate to and relate to him on I don't think people feel in the same. Now, he's he's had this month, there was a lot of flack again over he was giving out to his department over the fact that, you know, they weren't mentioning him. That's not a good look because people think, oh, why do you want your department to mention you and just give you praise? Ultimately, though, um, I think the Irish Independent did some analysis and said that he's actually right that, you know, he was the least mentioned minister by his department. Probably more a sign of what's general in the Department of Health than anything personal, but... It is that kind of pressure that's on him. Um, he finds himself uh, at times exposed by the fact that he's working on things and getting credit for it. He doesn't. He, it's that personal touch that people sometimes relate to somebody that he's really struggling with. And I don't know what the answer is there, how he's going to achieve that or how he's going to change it. That's something he's going to have to sit down with his team and really figure out over time. 
But I still think it's a major problem for him in that public just aren't feeling who is Stephen Donnelly and what is his mission among all this. What does Stephen Donnelly bring to the table? And he hasn't been able to identify that just yet uh, within this this crisis situation that people can say Stephen Donnelly's a man who's going to do X even if all else is wrong he does X well that's the bit he's struggling with we don't know quite yet from him what he brings to the table behind closed doors when is the time he steps up and when is the time he people get scared of him when is the time people kind of say well we have to go with Stephen on this we don't know and, and that's a bit I think has to be worked out over time for him where I will have some sympathy for him is a part of all that. And people might say, well, you know, maybe he's a bit uh, sensitive stuff about the tweets and the department not mentioning them and so on. He probably has reason to be. Um, I have always said to people, you know, I am dubious about anybody uh, who has ever joined a pol- another political party, then joining or ending up in Fianna Fáil. It doesn't tend to end well. And look, I say this as somebody who comes from that Fianna Fáil gene pool and was was raised in that. And look, the advantage I would have said to you that I had in all that was you could say to somebody when I was in the party, look, you know, you can cut me open and I'll bleed green because everything on generations of the family is both sides Fianna Fáil. And that's that. So nobody doubts it. Nobody looks at you and thinks, oh, yeah, you're not one of us. You you were born into it. That's that's the way. People who come to Fianna Fáil, who join the party, haven't been in other parties or haven't, you know, even at local level, you know, not been interested or criticised the party, will always suffer because Fianna Fáil people on the ground do not forget. They never forget. They remember. And they remember that you were, you know, there's, there's long memories in Fianna Fáil that will still go back to Stephen Donnelly's criticisms of Brian Lenehan at the time of the uh, bailout 2011 election. And they're still remembering that. And they don't forgive that kind of thing because you're attacking what was a heroic figure in the party and saying you could have done it better. There's going to be a certain amount of Fianna Fáil that are going to say Good enough for this guy. You know what? Back in the financial crisis, he had all the answers. This is a new crisis. Let him suffer. If it was somebody that they felt we really want to gather round, they would be gathering round him. That would be the way that would work. There is a sense that he's left a little bit. And I think Stephen Donnelly has been left a little bit on his own by parties. Uh, Fianna Gael have no reason to particularly support him. He has, even the media have kind of branded him as jumps from one party to another kind of thing. All of that has begun to affect the perception of him in that. And that's what's been difficult too. So I have some sympathy in that he's not getting any friends in there as far as I can see. And that does come with joining a party like that and and not having that rallying support behind you where people go, oh, well, hold on, this is our minister and we think he's doing a good job. He's kind of just, yeah, he's the guy, you know. In, in, in a Fianna Fáil sense, I think, if Stephen Donnelly was one of the fallers after all this, the party won't shed tears the way they would over some other figures. And, and that's a problem, a problem for him. They don't see him as somebody who bleeds green, let's say. Ultimately, um, let's look then at some of the other figures and where they're placed themselves. Because there's an interesting positioning between Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin. And Michal Martin has been trying to... Now, you know, you can see in Micheál Martin that the end of the term as Taoiseach is, is looming. 
Um, and as he looks at this, he's thinking of that legacy. The legacy can be coming out of COVID. It can be the, 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 the country feeling bright and happy. And I got you through this. And he realizes, yeah, I, I can have a strong impression on people and legacy from all of this. Um, and he's, he's working towards that. But he's by his nature a cautious man. Uh, Michal Martin is also known to be quite health conscious. Um, you know, this is the guy who's going to eat his salad over steak, which, again, I'm feeling a full circle, raises some eyebrows. Um, but at the same time, they go with him, they like him. He's been a good minister for the party in the past, and, and while they might have doubts over some of his decisions as leader, he's still their leader. Now, the problem here is, though, that Michal Martin has tended over the course of this to be the one who kind of sides with the health advice. And he's eager to try and position himself and has been as being the kind of voice that puts health before all other things. That's got him some criticism from those who say, look, Michal Martin is the last guy who's going to open the pubs. Michal Martin is the last guy that's going to allow us to have a drink. Michal Martin's going to come down on the side of all these doctors who want to stop us all drinking, eating, doing anything. We'll all be locked up forever if they have their way to protect us from ourselves. And Michal Martin is of that ilk. Now, at the same time, it's a good position for Michal Martin that when things begin to go wrong... You know, even when we talk about the, the, the reopening before Christmas, Leo Varadkar took more of the flack on that. And I'll come to why that is at the moment. But it's because, for Michal Martin, he wants to be seen as health comes before everything else and, and people's lives before everything else and saving lives before everything else. It's a narrative he's had ever since the smoking ban and it's stuck with him and it's served him well and he's going to continue with that narrative. And he's gradually trying to position himself, I think, as this very calm, very cautious figure who's doing things by degrees in the hope that I think people will look back and say he was the steady hand on the tiller when the country needed it. And you know what? Ultimately, long term, he saved lives and put health first and had a big impact on that. And that people can't criticise us if there are other rules that come out of that, like that change our alcohol laws or change our pub openings, well, you know, maybe it's for the betterment of society and we'll all be happier for it long term. That's how I think he sees that legacy and wants to be seen in that legacy. And he's positioned himself as that, but it's a tricky one because you're trying to manage what is a people who right now are getting tired of all the health advice. And there is a growing mood of come on, you know, stop protecting me from myself and let me just get on with it. So whether or not that timing is right, whether or not the people have moved on that message is very much open to debate and something we just can't tell right now. Uh, but that's where he's positioned and that's where he's taken the gamble that the legacy is. Now, on the other hand, Leo Varadkar has taken quite a different approach. Before Christmas, Leo Varadkar did take some of the flack for the reopening. Um, and, and so did Fine Gael ministers and, and, and uh, TDs who were seen as, you know, they pushed it a little bit more. Uh, there were those within Fianna Fáil as well. But I think Fine Gael took a little bit more of the flack on this one. Um, and Leo Varadkar has, even in the last month, been saying, well, look, yeah, we got things wrong um, in, in before Christmas and that's left us extra cautious now. But, you know, we do want to reopen. And what Leo Varadkar is doing there is he's repositioning what happened before Christmas into something that is, OK, we've learned from it. 
but I'm not changing my position. Leo Varadkar's position is definitely 100% the guy who wants business to reopen, things to get back to normal. He's the guy this month that says we all need to be a little less puritanical about people meeting for a drink outdoors. He's going to be the reasonable voice of lads, come on, we can have a bit of crack now. You know, we don't need to be... He's a doctor, so I guess he gets to say things like that. It's a very different approach, really subtly different, but very different. Um, because it looks not much on the outside, but when you delve into it, it's a, it's a big schism between that and where Micheál Martin has, has positioned himself. Because Leo is actually... And you know what? Leo is maybe taking up where traditionally Fianna Fáil would have seen itself as the party that was, you know, ah, oh, look, don't be getting stuck into the policy. Have a few pints, have a bit of crack, you know, the big get-togethers, the all that kind of thing was seen as a Fianna Fáil thing. <clears throat> the legendary drinking sessions of the ministers in the 60s and 70s, that kind of thing. You know, Michal Martin is a world away from that. Leo Radgar, it's not that he's anything in, in of, of that um kind of approach or or that he's any long drinking sessions but he's the guy who says look and i'm not going to frown on everything you know let's just get back open and he has repositioned that now many years ago i remember talking to vincent brown um when leo Varadkar was a, a an up-and-coming young minister and you know he shortly after time he was minister for health and vincent brown said to me you know one of the toughest people i found to interview was actually leo Varadkar. And he said, the problem is, he said, you get a line of questioning and you're ready to go with Leo. And you say, you promised you would do X and you have failed to do that. You know, how do you explain that? He said, you have your questions lined up for wherever he goes. But he said, then Leo goes, well, yeah, you're probably right. That wasn't our best ever idea. It was probably a bit premature to do that. So you're right. Yeah, yeah, we should should never promise that. Anyway, what we're going to do now. And he said, he just totally disarms it with this kind of thing of, yeah, okay, you're right. And and he's doing the same thing again here with the whole thing before Christmas, where you might say that as a weakness, as in, you got it wrong here before, you know, you were talking about reopening. So, yeah, yeah, that's made us extra cautious this time. You're right. So now I'm saying we do need to reopen, but we need to be careful, but we still need to reopen. And he's not actually conceding, yet he appears to concede the point. So as you move off from the whole thing of you know, you got it wrong for Christmas, you might get it wrong again. Yeah, that disarming way he can do that is one of his great techniques um, because he's not going to be embroiled in a battle of defending Christmas uh, and defending what was right or wrong. He'll take it and say, no, you're right, that shouldn't happen, but you know what, we've learned something from it uh, and we're, we're doing it a little bit differently now. It's a powerful position for him to present himself, but he is doing this gradually as I'm going to be the minister who people look to and say, you know what, it's it's probably Leo that's going to get this whole thing up and running again. It's probably him that's going to open it. One other little example of that came at the press conference on reopening, where one of the questions, I might have hosted questions then about what's allowed when, and by the way, getting really, really tiresome, um every time that we talk about reopenings, when different interest groups then jump in and go, what about us? What about us? Why are we different? You know, look at... And and maybe the government just has to communicate this message a bit better. But one of the things they've got to do is start saying to people, look, certain things, yes, could all open at once, but we're gradually opening. So we picked something. There might not be a science to why we picked it, but we're going to pick this thing and we're going to see how that goes. And if that goes well, the other things reopen as well. We're just not in a position to open everything. So winners and losers for a couple of weeks here, OK? But that's the decision. 
um, trying to make out that everything science-based is difficult, but equally it's getting tiresome listening to every group say, you know, why is they opened and we're not opened and why is that opened and this isn't opened? Surely this is going to, we can't, they're not going to open everything. We know that. And there is going to be some arguments for what should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed. Anyway, I digress as I normally do. But one of the things that was interesting uh, in the press conference <clears throat> Is they Michal Martins then asked, what about nightclubs? When will the nightclubs be open? And he said, look, there's a problem with the whole indoor space thing. And they're kind of, yeah, but there's this and there's that. And are nightclubs going to be reopened? Same kind of date issues or cinemas and more lack of clarity over whether cinemas were open, the same as theatres, all this kind of thing. But on the nightclub one, he's asked this and he says, you know, look, Indoor spaces are a problem, so we're just not going to know that just yet. And he says, yeah, that under questioning. He then jokes. Decent joke by Michal Martin. He says, look it, you know, I don't expect to be in coppers anytime soon. And, you know, I'm not going to be going to coppers soon. And there's a little bit of a laugh. And you think, that's a decent joke. Positions himself as in bit self-deprecating. Look it, you know, nightclubs, uh, no, indoor spaces are a problem no. I'm not going to be in coppers, look at me, you know, that's, that's, what can we do? Um, we'll have a little bit of a laugh about it. But Leo jumps in and then goes, actually, you know, Taoiseach, there's, uh, coppers has a great outdoor area and balcony, so you wouldn't know, you might be. And what's interesting there is, Michal Martin tries to be self-deprecating in that moment. He tries to break the ice of... Yeah, look, at the, the the indoor space thing is an issue, so I don't know yet. We're going to need to see how this goes. And then he tries to break it up by saying, look, I'm human. And you're not going to see me in coppers. I know what people are saying, looking at me as, oh, young people, nightclubs, you know, when were you last in a nightclub? And he plays to that and says, look, you know, I'm not going to be in coppers anytime soon. And it's a little bit self-deprecating, a little bit you know, a joke appreciating the fact that, you know, he's not going to be in coppers, but it creates an image of a Taoiseach who, you know, you're not going to bump into him, you know, in coppers when this is all over either. Leo Varadkar jumps in, though, with his joke, which actually positions him as, I know you might know of coppers. I've been to coppers. I've seen coppers. I know exactly what coppers looks like. And you know what? When this is all over, you people might actually find me in coppers immediately setting himself up with a younger generation of people to identify a little bit with them and go, the Taoiseach, yes, Grant, but that's a bit of a, you know, he, he isn't ever going to be there. I, on the other hand, I get it. And there's a little bit of tension ongoing there, I think, in the whole comms of this, of where Leo Varadkar is getting ready to position his term as Taoiseach. It's what's keeping the government together. They are positioning themselves not to, you know, they, they don't want an election during COVID, but even after COVID, once they get to a point where Fine Gael can say, we're taking over now. Leo Varadkar, I think, has his plan already laid out for what he wants this government to do post-COVID. I think Pascal Donoghue is doing the same in his kind of, there's a very quiet battle between him and Michael McGrath going on too in, in terms of positioning. That's going to continue. This tension is going to continue, uh, but I think once Fine Gael get into that zone where we're in t on top, they're going to be happy to be on top, and they're going to be happy that Fianna Fáil can't pull out, certainly while P Fianna Fáil are so low in the opinion polls, yet more opinion polls showing them, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17%. That's not where Fianna Fáil wants to fight an election, so they're going to have to wait too, forcing the government to actually 
stay together. So I think it's just interesting that we've seen all of that jostling going on between the different people in it. How it plays out, watch for it over the coming months because you're going to see an awful lot more of it, particularly as reopening. If something goes wrong with reopening, Michal Martin will be the first one to be talking about the caution and talking back to Nefes and working with them and, you know, what we have to do. Leo's going to be the guy who's going to kind of keep pushing the reopening and come on, let's go out and have a bit of crack this summer. Um, We need it. Business needs it now. And he's gradually doing that, but doing it cautiously uh, himself, trying to also say, yeah, I'm not being wild here, but I am the guy for all these people on the inside. Now, of course, the other big story that happened was we had a resignation this month, uh, that of Owen Murphy, um, who decided he was going to continue his career in international affairs, uh, but was going to step down as a TD, uh, causing, of course, a by-election. Great news, by-election coming up, actual politics, actual debate, actual votes. Oh, wonderful. Anyway... It does mean um, a couple of things that I want to explore briefly just in this episode because we're going to have lots of time to look at the by-election itself and uh, what's going to happen in the constituency. It was a little bit of a surprise move. It does throw some some big names in there, you know, as to, to what's going to happen in it. Just to say, because you've the likes of Hazel Chu uh, being, being touted for the Greens, Ivana Bacic for Labour. This is a pre-season kind of time when all the parties think... We could win this seat. Everybody thinks it's like, you know, football from pre-season. Everybody thinks they can win the league or get to Europe or whatever it is, stay up, avoid relegation. And then six months later, none of them can or, well, you know, only a few of them can. And the most are, are either fighting relegation or the season's not gone as they planned. Here's the thing. Uh, it's exactly like that by elections. All of the parties are looking at that thinking, you know what, on a good day, we could win it. There's going to be some big names humiliated in that by-election, let me say that now. There will be some big names who put themselves out and could finish their careers by actually being uh, in that by-election. And yet they will all say, this is a chance, this is a hope now to get stuck into it. Uh, But it's going to be a really tough one. Uh, And we'll explore why that is the case in in a later episode. Now, back to Owen Murphy. Um, This was a surprise because Owen Murphy was... You know, a very up-and-coming politician. Young, good-looking guy. Uh, he was the kind of guy who, you know, always had a very polished answer. Well-educated, smart. All the ingredients, you think, for going places in politics. As a result, he got his opportunity uh, to be made a minister in the last government. Minister for Housing and Local Government. It was a brutal ministry to take over. A little bit like the Stephen Donnelly thing, going into it in the middle of a crisis, because housing was the big crisis before COVID ever happened. And it was a major crisis for the government. Uh, you know what? I think, again, there needs to be some credit. I don't think O'Murphy was the disastrous minister that many people have painted him as, uh, who, who are opponents of his. But it wasn't his best ever performance. I think he did struggle to actually get decisive things over the line, whether that was problems within his own party, problems within that government. But he did struggle to make big changes. Yet he made quite a lot of smaller changes. He made a lot of of, of effort around policy and legislation. But it's a complex space. He found a complex and he found progress in it particularly difficult to get across the line. Weirdly enough, I wonder now if Owen Murphy was to look at at his time as minister. 
knowing that he, if we could have gone back, and if, because I, I don't believe when Old Murphy was minister, he was thinking of giving up politics. But if you could go back, and Old Murphy was to be told, listen, by 2021, you're going to be getting out of politics. Resign your seat. If he knows that, I wonder would Owen Murphy look back today and think, there's a few things I would have done differently. There are a few risks I would have taken as minister. Um, because knowing I was going to get out of politics, yeah, you know. Now, maybe it was always at the back of his mind to do this. I don't know. I don't know what his personal thoughts were, but I don't think so. Um, and here's the thing I've often said about politicians. Politics is not a career. Politics is meant to be something you do for a while away from your career. You do it as a public kind of good or because you believe in something or because you want to get something over a line, policies, way things are done, whatever. <clears throat> the most important thing in politics is that you're able to walk away from it. Politicians who can't walk away from politics are rarely great politicians because they continually calculate based on what's going to keep them in politics rather than what might be the right thing to do here. What's the legacy thing? How will this be viewed in 10, 15, 20 years? And usually the thing that will be viewed well in 10, 15, 20 years is not the thing that's going to keep you in power today. Um, and that means you got to take big risks and you got to take big chances and they may or may not go well. And I would sense, I think, that when Owen Murphy was minister... There was a lot of calculations going on as to how this might impact the party, party colleagues, his reputation. Taking risks and making big decisions like that was going to impact, you know, um, future career prospects. It was one to try and navigate, navigate well. I just wonder, I really do, would he go back now and say, yeah, if I had it over and knowing I'm going to pack it in, I would. Cause I, I just think politicians tend to perform better when they're kind of, yeah, I take a risk here and I'm going to go with this. I believe it's the right thing to do and I don't care what flack comes in for it. I'm going to do it. The legacy can sometimes be a bit stronger or better. But that said, he was willing to take on that ministry at a tough time and gave it his all. So I think right now um, he deserves some credit for that, uh, particularly at the time when he is, is deciding to step down. I do believe in looking at, at some of the positives there. And uh, I think, you know, the other thing about it is we've now seen a couple of politicians who have stepped down from politics with the idea of resigning a seat. Now, years ago, that was an unheard of thing really to happen. It was so rare that someone would kind of step out and go, do you know what, I'm done and I resign my seat. Because you were damaging your party. You were asking your party to have to fight an election. It might not win, cost them a seat. It seemed to be always perceived in the olden days at least like a bit of an up yours to your party if you walked out and you resigned your seat and made them fight by election um in this one i'm not sure what what's the background to it really but i do know um that it can't be excellent news for Fine Gael, and i don't think it's excellent news for politics Bright, someone bright, you know, whether, he, and I know, look, some of you are listening to this and you're saying, oh, I hate him and he was useless and he's no loss to politics. And that's fair enough. That's your view. That's good. But, you know, anybody that is young and smart, I think, you know, it is worrying when they kind of decide, you know what, there's a career out there uh, that I'm going to take. However, um, I think, and it's something we do have to be mindful of, that when, and I, I've talked with many politicians over the years, and one of the things that I sometimes struggle with is that sometimes when the bug bites, it's very hard to get them to let go of the reins of power. It's very hard to get them to see. You say to them, look, it's done. Forget it. Just resign. Resign the seat. Go to the back benches. Whatever it is you want to do. But, you know, look, it's over. 
and just see out your term. Now, mostly politicians wouldn't resign their seat, but they would see it out till the next election and then they'd say, I'm not standing again, you know, and, and they go out in that. To resign your seat seems a bit more urgent. Maybe it's because of the job that's on offer. I don't know. But it does always seem like a, a an extreme move for a politician. <clears throat> However, um, one of the things that we, we've got to be mindful of with them is, you know, it is good that a politician can kind of see the light sometimes and go, yeah, do you know what? I'm getting out. And I do respect politicians who can see it. And it can be hard for many. You've seen a, a Tishi, Bertie Hearn, and Kenny. You know, they find it hard to kind of say, okay, it's over. All right, I will step back and I'll just resign this month. They always want a month more. They want to do something extra. And sometimes they just stay that little bit too long and get forced out when they could have left with some pride months earlier when they saw the writing on the wall. You see this with ministers who've been forced to resign. You're kind of like, you, you could have kept your reputation intact if you just accepted, I'm not going to get over this earlier and stop fighting to stay on when it was inevitably we're going to be made resign same kind of thing but politicians tend to do it because they get convinced by the bubble they're in the reality is that when you talk to those politicians afterwards they're sometimes usually wondering yeah why was i so desperate to cling to the job why was i so desperate to stay in it because you know what life in politics isn't all that great and sometimes when i've sat down with politicians and you look at the pros and cons they're very quick to kind of realize Politics doesn't actually stand up as a career choice, as a job. It doesn't stand up as a great job. Most people who've been in politics can get, can get a really good role outside of politics that pays better, that has better hours and makes a lot less flack for you and your family than anything in politics. And that's why I say it should always be a short term thing. You go in there to do a job and you get out. Because when you actually sit down, it's never going to add up as a career. You're going to spend less time with your family. You're going to take an awful lot more abuse for what you're doing. And the chances of you actually doing something right or getting something through are actually quite small. You're really up against it all the time. And you'll probably be left potentially with a legacy that you didn't want, that wasn't you and you didn't get your best time in it. All of those things impact people's judgment. So I think when people sit back, sometimes they can actually look and go, yeah, it's it's not the career. And one of the signs on this is how many people actually, you know, who, who work with politicians or are close to politicians start out maybe as youngsters thinking I'd like to be a politician and how many of them actually back away from it over the years because they think, uh, you know what, I can have a better life quietly outside of this than actually ever doing that. So it is a thing. And I think it's something we have to be mindful of because I think it's worrying that we are losing some politicians. We are continuing to lose people who have an interest in us. And this has happened across all parties. All parties have lost people who just kind of held their hands up and said, actually, do you know what? I'm resigning. People at council level, people who have potential. We're seeing it time and time again across every single party where they're losing some good people. And it is because this isn't an easy job and I think we need to be mindful of that I don't think we can change it I don't think there's ways to make it much easier but I think we can be mindful of it particularly sometimes when we're talking about the criticisms they face because you know why would someone do it and sometimes when we're talking about the pay and we're talking about the conditions and what a wonderful they're all all right it's not all that on a bag of chips guys it's not and therefore there are much better options and yeah you don't like the politician from one side or another, fine. 
but you know i think there is a point and it does generally happen around politicians themselves where they do get some respect when they're finished fighting and tearing the strips off each other on the floor of the house they get some respect for each other afterwards and we do need to ensure that main is maintained because they need to feel something of, of that and the other thing as i've said recently with social media and things I'm a big fan of these things and I, I've often said politicians panic too much about what they read on social media and what people are saying about them because they tend to think, oh, this has changed the world. It's not so much it's changed, it. you're just hearing it. And sometimes they need to turn off their mentions and just not be reading all the stuff that people say to them on social media or about them. It's stuff they wouldn't have heard 20 years ago. You didn't have to listen into that. Your party workers filtered everything back to you and you only heard just what people were willing to say to your face. So, you know, look, politics is a, 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 it's a different game now, but it does take a tough skin. Uh, but I do think, you know, we must be mindful that we're not going to attract some of the best people into it when there are better options out there. And, and we can't keep demeaning politics, demeaning what it's worth to pay them, demeaning what they are entitled to, because we don't like the team who are currently in. If we keep doing that, then one day our team gets in and they're going to suffer from the same problems. You know, we have to actually say the system deserves something in there. And I just wish politicians on their side would say this isn't a career. End of career politicians, I think, would be a great, uh, a great achievement for politics. On the other side, I would love to think that uh, the public and people can kind of say, do you know what, they do deserve some respect, no matter where side they come from or what is, they're, they're all there doing some kind of decent job. It is a, a, an interesting one that Owen Murphy has chosen now to resign and resign the seat. And I think it's going to be a real cracker of a by-election. So I think that's one to keep your eye on. And as I say, we're going to have some analysis of that in the coming weeks on the podcast. But uh, it's definitely, oh, I think it was Valerie McDermott on Twitter who said to me, you know, the biggest story before lockdown was the general election. And probably the big story after lockdown ends may be the by-election. Well, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if all this been locked down and locked up, at least was book-ended by two elections for all the election nerds. That might make up for it a little bit. Now, he wasn't the only resignation, though, that happened. We also had a little bit of news in north of the border, where Arlene Foster has stepped down as leader of the DUP. And again, interesting one here. I'm not going to go into too much depth because, look, do you know what? If you're going to ask me about how the inner workings of the DUP, I'm going to get lost in there. I'm not going to portray myself as an expert on what the DUP knows or, or does. But <clears throat> it is an interesting time. Northern Ireland is in a very precarious state and a very precarious state because... There are cycles to things um, that happen, in particularly in, in societies where they have been marked by violence. The Troubles, as we know them, um, you know, maybe spanning from, let's say, 1969 to uh, 90, 96, 97, that, that kind of 98 in the Good Friday Agreement. Those times bred a whole generation of people. I mean, the IRA campaign in Northern Ireland uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. I think it had the lifespan of a volunteer was about two two years. Um, they were either going to be imprisoned or dead uh, after that. So you can imagine how much recruitment it took to keep that system going uh, to ensure you had a steady supply of 
young cadets coming through. Um, and yet they managed it. And the same goes on the, the loyalist side. But I want to draw a line here because there was a lot of violence in Northern Ireland over the last month or so. Um, a lot of people have been disgruntled, particularly on the loyalist side. And it shows that disillusionment with politics that I was talking about before. When it gets hold, particularly in younger generations, it creates an issue. People think politics is not the answer here. Northern Ireland spent a long, long time convincing people that politics was the answer. And there were good reasons why people in Northern Ireland didn't think politics was an answer. Let's be quite clear. Uh, politics wasn't getting them places. It was seeing huge abuses to certain sections of the communities. And when it finally got to a point that you had the IRA ceasefire in 94 and followed by the UDA and UVF ceasefires, that changed everything. It made something inevitable come about peace and politics. That move, that, that once, you know, people can say, oh, the ceasefire was broken after that, but, but it was always, it was never, there was an inevitability about this has to change. But it was an inevitability born out of the fact that the very people who ran the likes of the IRA, the UDA, the UVF, they were experienced people. Um, and I want to say in, in this that, you know, I'm not praising what they, they, they were by any stretch of the imagination, but in these situations, over time, like in any army, um, over time you build up almost like a veteran-like capacity. You've been through this, you've understood this, you know what it is. Therefore, you're well aware of the price you've paid over the last 20, 30 years. They were, on both sides, very aware. They were very aware of the limitations that their campaigns now had. They were very aware of the opportunities that might be offered to them and what that might mean. And they were very aware that, you know, this might be a problem if it's rejected at this point, given how a community has been marked by it and has such a desire to move on. Fast forward to now and you get a very different situation because when you have people disgruntled now with the political situation in Northern Ireland and disillusioned with politics, the dividends that came from people feeling, if you're on the, the, the nationalist side, you felt, you know, Sinn Féin's growth was, was, you know, continual. On the other side, for the DUP, they were the second party in unionism to the UUP they managed to overtake them and, and you know, become the, the major party in it. There was a dividend to all this in, in Northern Ireland, the opening up of Northern Ireland. But now you have a generation who never knew what was before. And what they're seeing is a gradual stalling of many of those dividends. There's not something new coming over the horizon. There's not something new that politics can win. At best, all politics can offer is business as usual and business as usual in a society where you're still either nationalist or loyalist. It's, that's just it. There's no left and right wing here going on to any great degree. There's, you know, conservative rules and all that kind of stuff, but it still ties you into the community you were born into, how you're going to actually vote here. And you have to choose between the parties on your own side of that line, maybe. That's difficult and it has created that, that problem. Politics, when it stalls, and it will stall in cycles over time, cannot produce a dividend anymore 
for a younger generation, a younger generation who are not in a position like some older people to say, oh, well, wasn't it great, though, what we got? Because they've never known it. Well, it's a great, great story of 20, 25 years ago, but so what? You know, now is our time to go do something special. And younger people will always want it to be their time to do that special thing, to have their moment and not just be another also-ran generation. So they're standing up for things, they're fighting things. But equally, uh, in Northern Ireland or in any kind of society that's come from conflict, it's incredibly dangerous. What you have lost in Northern Ireland, people talk about paramilitaries and paramilitary violence. If there was a return to any kind of violence, it's not the violence of the, the, the early to mid-90s. It's not a violence of groups that were well experienced, for want of a better word, at paramilitary warfare with each other, who knew uh, what was too risky and what wasn't and what they would or wouldn't be acceptable to even their own supporters. You would have now uh, groupings going out who have to learn all of that all over again. You would see some of the worst atrocities uh, and the most foolish and the most inexperienced because you're dealing with groups that have lost all that accumulated knowledge that was there at least in the 90s that 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 experienced veterans hand shall we say will be gone and you're dealing with groups who now will be people by groups who, who have no real sense of what they're actually trying to do and that leads to an awful lot of carnage and mayhem wherever it's happened in the world uh, as those groups then jostle to find what is our position and what is our experience and before those learned experiences start to influence behaviours. All of that points to real worrisome thing in Northern Ireland. Boris Johnson distracted completely by his own uh, problems in Britain and the fact that Brexit Britain, look, really, Northern Ireland is never going to be high on its agenda. It's never going to be one of those things that they want to be involved in. It's a problem uh, and the problem child that's going to distract them. All of that is is playing into this. I think it's interesting that Arlene Foster, who did seem to be in a strong position, <clears throat> was deposed so quickly and efficiently by the DUP, does leave big questions as to where the DUP are going to go now. Because, again, I mentioned there that the UUP used to be the big party when David Trimble was there and the peace process and all of the Good Friday Agreement, all that, the DUP were kind of on the outside of so much of it. The dinosaurs... I remember David Irvine t- calling Ian Paisley that and saying, you're a dinosaur, it's passed you by, you know, look, at we're moving on. And he was from the paramilitary side of things, you know. But the DUP stuck it out, they stuck out this, and then, and the more concessions that are made, the DUP end up being, we wouldn't have conceded that. But then, when it all happens, the DUP just take up power and Ian Paisley sits beside Martin McGuinness and you think, how, how did that happen? But it was politics well played, we we're going to keep, pulling away voters from you guys until you guys look soft and now we're going to take over. A little bit of that seems to be what's happened within the DUP itself now. And I think there's a way to go in that story because I think the DUP is not looking from the outside. I don't see it as a unified a party as it really seems. And I think it's a party struggling with a modern age, knowing that its base is largely its base because it needs to be strong on loyalist issues. It needs to give a voice, particularly to young people, on loyalist issues. Because on many of the more conservative issues, social issues, it's struggling in a world that is changing. 
a Northern Ireland society that's changing and a younger voter demographic that's changing on some of those conservative issues. And in order to keep relevant to them, it has to be the tough guys of loyalism, the guys who want to be a little bit more stringent in, in that kind of thing, if it's to identify with them. Now, that's a real dangerous place to be. And then... Is it able to get those social issues? Does it want to be double down on them and be even stricter to, in order to keep happy an older demographic vote? I think it looks to me, uh, non-expert view, but it does look to me like a party whose own demographics are beginning to fray and it's struggling to deal with that. And, and I'm not sure a new leader is going to be able to handle it any better. I will say, I think, Arlene Foster. While a strong politician and a strong woman lacked that sense of charisma that sometimes a leader needs, to be able to actually she came across as perhaps bullish and you know a bit immovable at times and that suited but they wanted something more they wanted something that was going to actually lead the fight back that was going to be a little bit more dynamic and i think that's probably what the dup are going to to look towards now of course um looking across uh, the floor from the DUP was Sinn Féin and they have had their own difficulties that I think are worth just touching on for a moment because politically it's one of those really interesting things one of those interesting things that this podcast loves which of course is how do political parties organize themselves how do they plan for the future <clears throat> how do they organize their grassroots uh, how do they organise their, 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 their internal party operations? All something we've looked at in detail over the years and particularly over our, our general election series uh, of podcasts. But Jim Fain uh, ran into a little bit of trouble this month. Um, and this was about a voter database uh, that was stored and what was actually happening with it. Um, and where whether it was being stored off-site, did they have names, addresses of people and their voting intentions, all of that kind of thing stored. Yeah. Now, a couple of things to say on, on this, because I think it's an interesting thing. Because um, I, I, I have to say, I just think there's an evolutionary problem here um, with political parties understanding how the old world transforms into a new world and how we organise that. Um, and let me take it away from Sinn Féin for a moment to, to, to just give some of the things that have changed in politics over the years. For instance, data collection is not a new thing. Um, and I mentioned this on Twitter. When I was involved in politics uh, many, many years ago, we, of course, collected information, if you like, at a local level on it. Now, for sometimes, that's just information. You can't help as a human but collect information and data. That's how our brains are designed. So let's just remember that first. Every conversation makes you think that person sounds like they're a Fianna Grailer. That person sounds like they're a Fianna Fowler. That person sounds like they like this issue. That person sounds like that's the heart of politics is guessing whether somebody you're talking to is on your side or not. Same thing goes on Twitter. We all read our tweets nowadays and we decide that person sounds like they support the government. That person sounds like they don't. People listening to this podcast will immediately analyse Johnny Fallon sounds like he still loves Fianna Fáil. Johnny Fallon sounds like he's sold out Fianna Fáil and he now loves Fianna Grail. Johnny Fallon sounds like he's actually a bit sympathetic to Sinn Féin. Johnny Fallon sounds like he's this, that, the other. And everyone will have an opinion on whatever view I express uh, across the podcast. And that's fine. 
that's your own data collection and your own assessment of where um my bias is and we all have a bias so fine now when i was in politics uh and working in a, a common locally we had a very small common we had a very small polling booth rural irish polling booth but yes we knew pretty much how everybody in that polling booth voted number one you had the electoral register you could physically see people going in and out now because we had a small polling booth, we had only one kind of, you know, booth to look after, one person, you know, to one electoral register. In big urban areas, as I was always aware that it was done, was the same kind of thing. But every, what you aimed for was that you had ward bosses. So although you have much bigger polling booths, they were divided, subdivided then into wards. And a ward boss knew that street in the estate or those couple of streets in the estate that were assigned to that person who would then say, yeah, I know how many votes are in my ward here. And they would also know whether or not who voted or who didn't. And they'd analyse that after because you have uh, impersonation officers at the the town centres or at the the, uh, the polling booths. And the impersonation officers are there to ensure that you know, everything is fair, they're an important part of it, but they're also able to see, you know, who's showed up and who hasn't to vote. They're able to take that register and they're able to kind of figure it out. So we would know kind of, well, what was the turnout here? Who voted? Who didn't? Who did we see at the polling booth? Who did we not? And you knew out of that, well, here are the definite Fianna Fáil votes. We know who they are. Um, now, we also knew who the definite Fianna Gael votes were. And OK, we've got them. And then there were a few people who might have made clear that they were voting for an independent or somebody else. And you took all those definites out and you were left with a much smaller number of people that we couldn't actually apply a definite to. And then you began to look and go, OK, um, so how many votes did each of the candidates get? So apply those votes from the polling booth, from the tally that will have been done. We can say, OK, so how far off? So there's actually we need to find an X amount number of votes here for the Fianna Fáil candidate, the Fianna Gael candidate. And you begin to assign likelihoods then, um, based on an issue. Based on what you come down to is such a small number that you're really unsure about. You can pretty much guess, working back the numbers, how everybody's voted. And you know exactly where you're going to work the next time. Now, sometimes, as I say, that was written down by the person in the community. It was their interest. They write it down in a copy book and say, here we go stick it in, uh, as, as I said, an afternoon tea uh, tin box um, and, you know, put up there and it was brought down various times. Say, yeah, we, these are the ones we're going to focus on now that we need to get them back because I think they may have voted for the other person based on the numbers. All of that, you know, is, as somebody said to me, well, it was still data collection, so that copy book should have been, but here's the difference, okay? It might have been, um, but... Certainly GDPR was not known in, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, and even the mid to late 90s, GDPR was, was something people were struggling with as an idea. That's something most people have only come to, to knowledge of. And I would say many grassroots uh, political people are unaware of how much they're allowed to store or write down or anything else. And for many people, it wasn't even written in a copy book because they wouldn't even trust it. In a multi-seat constituency and in a party where very often people didn't want anything that could be shared. The last thing you would do, and if I had that information in a common, the last thing I'd do is share it anywhere. Because that information was power. If I knew how people in my area voted, then the candidate needs me in order to navigate that area. I don't want anyone else in my common, never mind anywhere else, 
having that information. So store a lot of it in my head, maybe. Um, simply because I want to be able to say, this is a person I think you focus on, and that's where the politician has value. Equally, politicians don't want their headquarters having that because then they can move the candidates. They can share that information with all the candidates. That's not a good idea when your running mate has the same sense of who's voting what way as you. Not a good, not good if you're fighting in a close constituency. So you never share that information and you don't want your headquarters to have that information. That's local knowledge. That's local power. It gives the grassroots power. Headquarters knows it needs those commons. It needs the people who have that information. It needs the people who in, know in detail what is happening. Um, and that's been the way political parties have worked. They always knew. They collected money, church gates. They knew who donated, who didn't at the church gate. And the local people knew that, even if it was more difficult for headquarters to actually assign that and say, well, what does that mean? They had to work with the local party. And local parties knew this is our power. Our power is knowledge of our polling booth and who might be worth working on and who's a waste of time to be spending time uh, at their door. Vital information. But as I say, it wasn't shared in any way because you didn't want your, your headquarters knowing it because that gave your local organisation power and your candidates needed to keep those commons. It kept the candidates fighting over particular commons because the candidates wanted, I, I need the guy in that common who knows that area and will get me the votes and will know where to focus. That was what was necessary. But flip forward to a modern age and a lot has changed in on, on over time. In the same way, I remember a time when when we were going out to get votes and I was a kid and I was, you know, outside the polling booth. And we had several cars on the road of common members who had the register and said, who has voted and who hasn't voted yet? Oh, you know, Mary hasn't voted yet. Come on, somebody go up and offer Mary a lift. And a car was sent up and got Mary in and Mary was brought down to the polling station, uh, you know, reminded to do the right thing and vote for our candidate. That was well organised. Now, over the years, even in my time of it, by the, the, the mid to late 90s, that was dying out because people were kind of going, uh, there's insurance issues. What if someone crashes the car with someone in it? Is it their insurance? Are we and people began looking for, well, am I going to be paid money? Am I going to be insured? Is it official what we're doing here? Or is it not official? If it's official, it's an entirely different story. Then I need my car insurance paid for. I need maybe an expenses for my petrol. But it was a process that derived from a time when it was never seen as an official thing. You didn't get an expenses for your car driving around, you know, bringing people to the polling station. You did it because that was your job and, you know, this was your bit for the party. You didn't think of the insurance kind of implications of it because it was just you deciding it and nobody... At headquarters had said to you, you must do this. Or your candidate had never said, you must do this. You just knew this is how it's done. Now transform that as things began to get more centralised into what parties began to understand. How do, we, how do we make this official? If you want to get that really rigid system and your headquarters says, yes, you must bring people to the polling booths, know who's voted and bring them. Well, in that case, you're probably going to have insurance issues. In that case, you aren't going to have people who are going to say, well, if you're expecting me to be out all day in my car, I want some expenses for that. That's going to happen as you grow as a party. And therefore, you saw certain techniques like that begin to die out and begin to go, listen, people find their own way to pull, but we can't be having people in the cars. And what if something happened to someone in a car? What if someone was attacked in a car? God only knows. World's end of problems. 
I think over the years, the sending of cars around and all that kind of thing has, has died out a lot for most of the major parties out of fears of what could go wrong with it. At the same time, certain other things uh, have stayed, which is, you know, trying to assess, you know, what happens and where the information is. Now, if you think about it, it makes absolute sense if you're in headquarters to say, we have this huge database from our members, this huge knowledge. And if we can centralise that and we can give that to experts in HQ to actually decipher and use, it makes us a much stronger party. And it does. Imagine all the uses you could put that information to, voting intentions, where they are, what they're doing, whether you think it's a plus or minus. First of all, there are ways that information could be shared, particularly if it's stored electronically. Not all of them are good, by the way. Let's let's deal with that in a moment. But it does offer you that. That's one thing. Second thing, it takes the power away from your grassroots. You no longer are reliant on them. They've given you their information. They've given you your data. You now have it. You can analyse that. You can swap candidates in and out if you need them. You can parachute a candidate in if you need it. You'll still have access to all that information. You don't lose the information because it's now stored centrally. But if you're doing that, there's a big difference between the party doing that and doing that as a direction, as in, give us all that information, upload it here, and we'll take it from here. And the person who is doing it voluntarily under no direction from their headquarters and keeping it because they wanted their own little power base. That's a different thing. That's not being done organisationally, centrally. Yes, there was a culture that this is how it's done, a sharing of you'll be a powerful person if you can get this kind of knowledge. And then people voluntarily went off and decided doing it and they were getting it. But never a direction, as in you must have all this information and you must then give it to us. That becomes an entirely different thing. You know, if you're, and even in the modern age, as we say, when we are getting into GDPR, you can talk about the, the technical side of the law and you'd need a GDPR expert to, to, to get into the labyrinthine issues around the, the collection of information. But ultimately, very few of regulators are going to be looking for every individual around the country who is involved in politics, who might be gathering their own little bit of uh, data in their head or in a notebook somewhere. Uh, and saying, yeah, yeah, I think he's... And, and, and there's nothing to say that's necessarily wrong or right. And it's a whole... It's a real problem. But what they can say is if a party is centrally organising it and they are demanding that information be uploaded and sent on and given to them, that's different because you can you can control a party. It's very hard to control a mass of different individuals doing this in different ways, some in their head, some in their notebook, some whatever, and, and maintaining it locally. And probably not even sharing it with each other because of their, their power um, dynamics. Very different when it's done centrally by the party. That's where you are going to get regulators stepping in and going, hold on. If you've got this, then maybe we should be policing it. Because now you can put that to a whole range of different uses. And if it's stored electronically and you have expert companies looking at it, parsing it, taking it apart and then saying, well, look, Here's what it means and here's how we'll apply it. Mail shots, I don't know, targeted uh, social media posts, whatever. It's a very different world. And I think that's where old meets new. I don't think it was intentionally, I have to say, by Sinn Féin, something that they were, haha, we're doing this really secretly. I think it was. This is the way parties have organised information. <clears throat> it seems like a really good idea. At one point you say, 
listen, we could get all that. Imagine if we had it centrally, how we could help the people on the ground use it. Seems like a thing. People on the ground, particularly in Sinn Féin, which is still growing, doesn't have the situation of two or three people fighting for this, a seat uh, of, from the same party yet. Doesn't have uh, the vast network uh, as yet the Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael would have had. And therefore, you have a party that's in that young growth stage still willing to do the thing for the party, to share the information up the line. In the same way as I saw Fiona Sheehan had a great piece in the last election, I think of Owen O'Brien's election machine. And they were still talking about getting the vote out and how they were going round to houses and doing it. And I was seeing so much that I would have recognised from years before in an organisation like Fianna Fáil. But that wasn't there anymore, but largely because Fianna Fáil had grown to a point where, yeah, people are actually worried about some of the legalities of, that they'll run into, some of the problems that can be, even if there was never actually a case, they were getting worried about it and were stepping back. No, 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 I don't do that for my party. That could now get me into insurance issues and things like that. Sinn Féin still had that kind of up and coming, you know, they were, they were, they were eager to get out and help their party. And I think as a result... Of course, grassroots members are inclined to go, yeah, hand this up to headquarters because we're all on the same side here. There will come a time in Sinn Féin's growth when its grassroots will not be willing to share with headquarters as much because they'll realise the power dynamic. If you give all your power to them, makes you less relevant on the ground and you've got to hold something back from them. But at this point, that information was shared. Where is it shared? Where is it stored? All of that has been a real headache. So ultimately... My view of, of the Sinn Féin database is that it could be a very major problem for Sinn Féin from a technical, legal perspective. Um, just as big a problem as, and, and Sinn Féin will be doing the, the, the usual kind of thing, but what about? And that will be, people will say about the, the if you look at Leo Varadkar's problems in the last month about the, the, the leaked document, you know, did Leo Varadkar actually go out there, I think, intentionally to do something bad? And, and I, no, I don't think so, but... You can't get around the fact that this is going to have to be investigated and technically might be something quite seriously wrong and has caused a big issue within the party, even if it was like, because look, he's not a legal expert on what he could or couldn't share and shared something. It got shared on and, you know, was a rule broken? We'll have to wait and see. Same kind of thing is going to have to happen with GDPR, despite all the talking of what Sinn Féin is. We're going to have to wait and see what a regulator actually says is was it put to any incorrect use? Is it right or wrong? And all parties are going to be watching this because I think they all would love to gather more and more information. But I think the old systems of politics have gradually come up the line and are now being used in a very different way with technology. And that means sharing of information happens. Everybody who's ever tallied a vote knows that all the parties work together on county. And when those vote tallies are turned up and the boxes are, the tallies are brought back, they're all put, entered into a computer screen and everybody shares that and everybody, they'll be printed in your local newspaper and it's from that that many people can identify who's voting for who when they go back knowing exactly who showed up at the vote. You can't be sure that there isn't going to be a problem with how everybody openly shares that at count centres one day. Um, you know, it's, it's not personal data. Um, it's not something that's identified, so that's fine. That's probably okay. But I know that there are some people increasingly getting worried when they look at these things, saying, how much is going to then be told? Actually, we think that might not be best practice, that that's so widely available. 
and shared and that it's not more secure at the count centres and so on. So, you know, could tallying and, and things like that also have an issue? Maybe, don't know. <clears throat> um, But these are the kind of things that I think has been kicked up by, by the likes of GDPR. And political parties are going to watch what happens with Sinn Féin. If Sinn Féin pay a price, it may push back on that whole thing of centralisation of information. If they don't pay a price for it, and if the regulators say, well, you know what, this is fine, um, it's only voting intentions, it's not actually any data, it's, it's, it's a electoral register, and then it's just, we think this person is going to vote for Fine Gael, and this person's going to vote for Champagne, and that person's going to vote for Fianna Fáil. That's, they say, look, yeah, it's just a document that doesn't actually contain data um, that these people have revealed or said or confidentially given or anything else. And let's say they say it's fine. I think you will see a push on nearly all parties then to say, right, let's access our databases on the ground. I think other parties are going to find a bit more resistance from their grassroots in actually doing some of that because, as I say, information's power. But they're going to want to do it. I think it will give a go-ahead to having some clarity around what is information you can gather and share and work from these big grassroots organisations that you've got in Ireland. On the other hand... If Sinn Féin does pay a price for this, I think it's going to affect an awful lot of the habits and things that are done in politics where people are going to question everything that gets done, particularly electronically. Although paper will also have the same issues, but particularly electronically, I think people are going to back away from it and say, hold on, we can't be keeping, you know, what databases, everything. We, we've been operating under a kind of thing that this is still the same thing and it hasn't been impacted provided we don't break confidentiality, but maybe it's all different now. And maybe there are some things we should be giving up on in the same way as we gave up on the car being sent around for somebody when we didn't, weren't quite clear on the insurance or if something went wrong or something happened to the person in the car. All of those kind of things. That changes. That's going to change over time. And I think this could be one of those instances where we look back and say the decisions taken on that through it one way or another. What I will say is that politics and truth is changing in the technological age and parties are struggling to keep up because they are trying to modernise older systems that have worked well and they're trying to pit them into a new world. And I think for Sinn Féin, there are particular challenges themselves because... <clears throat> Sinn Féin have been doing things that the other parties were doing maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, in terms of how they approach their party. The other parties don't do that stuff as well anymore as they used to. Why is that? A lot of that is because the other parties along the way, as they grew and got bigger, got into trouble with some of those things. They ran into issues with them, and that's why they started backing away from them. Sinn Féin is now beginning to discover that as it grows and as it increases, it's going to run into some problems and maybe some of the systems that the older parties left aside were because they realised we have to, we can't control everything we'd like to and we have to allow a certain amount of, of you know, what was a good activity and got results, but it's just not possible to keep that going with the rules in place as we grow scrutiny is also growing and one of the things Sinn Féin are going to find difficult I said this in a podcast oh maybe it's it's well before the last election I said you know look one of the things Sinn Féin is going to find is that if it thinks it was under scrutiny then wait till it gets more seats 
then the scrutiny is going to ramp up. And I'm going to say to every Sinn Féin person out there listening to this today, if you think you're under scrutiny now, wait until you go into government. And I know you'll think, oh, well, that's because we're Sinn Féin. No, the truth is it happens to every party. And all of those scandals you remember coming out week after week after week about Fianna Fáil or about Fine Gael in government, that's what you think the media is hiding and protecting them. To those people in those parties, it was an endless stream of media just picking on them while not looking at. And that's why we get this whataboutery. Every time you criticise Fine Gael, they say, but what about Sinn Féin? Every time you criticise Sinn Féin, you go, but what about Fine Gael? Everybody thinks the other side is getting away with something they're not and they've it tougher. But let me tell you, it only gets really tough as you get up in size, as you grow. And the bigger you get as a party, the more that scrutiny happens and the further you go the more power you get the further you go into government the more scrutiny that lands upon you and the more influential you are in government the more scrutiny that lands upon you that's not going to go away so I think Sinn Féin has to brace itself that there's going to be more and more of this it's not going to get better it's going to get tougher for them Um, but we will await and see what happens out of that database issue because I think it's an interesting little Sidebar, I don't think it's a major issue. I don't think anybody's out there, voters, going, oh, I'm not going to vote for Sinn Féin because of that whole database thing. I don't think people care about it that much. I don't think it's a big voting issue. The reason it's making the news is because it is something that's defining how politics is run, how political parties are going to approach it. And indeed, the headquarters of all parties are probably scratching their chins and kind of going, you need to see how this one pans out. Because if Sinn Féin are able to continue doing this, it gives them a big advantage in terms of their growth stage of the party and how willing those grassroots members are still at the moment to give up power. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, for instance, have long passed that point. I would even think the likes of Labour has long passed that point where grassroots are willing to give up power to headquarters and willingly send them up. Same kind of thing, by the way, used to happen with donations. Your local common throws a function and there was always this thing of, well, if you throw a function, does that money get sent up to headquarters as a donation to the Fianna Fáil party to fight the elections or whatever? Or should the common keep it in order to finance the commons local election activities and maybe there will be stuff needed to give to a common member who is then fighting an election and we can say well the common has x amount raised uh, and we'll keep that for the local election and when you know councillor johnny is going running out maybe we'll be able to buy a few extra posters or we'll be able to do something else uh you know for that there's low how much money goes up nationally? And then parties come up with stuff like, well, you send, if you have a national draws, for instance, you send all of the money up and then we'll divvy it out back down to the constituencies so as to keep it safe and on the books because we got into this whole grey area of when you donated, was the money sitting in your common account or was it going up to Fianna Fáil headquarters to fight elections? How much money was out there? They didn't even know. So those kind of power dynamics have changed a lot over the last 50 years or so, and they're continuing to change and will change into the future. Uh, so it's a fascinating uh, debate to watch.
And that brings us to the end of this uh, month's news analysis. And thank you for listening and staying with us on the podcast. So just to remind you again that we will be returning to the referendum series where we're going to cover off a number of referendums in one episode as the forgotten referendums of the late 90s and early 2000s um, and some big issues that were decided and people have even forgotten how big they were at this stage. Um... But so that is something to look forward to. I want to thank you all for listening in. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give it a shout out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you share your podcasts and let people know uh, if, if you've enjoyed it. Um, and of course, remind them that the election series is still up there, as is our ongoing referendum series as well. Um one final thing I think to say in terms of thanks I want to thank everybody on Twitter who uh, contributed and and gave me thoughts and opinions on this as always I want to thank Car Communications who provide the time and space in order to run uh, this particular podcast and uh, it is it is much appreciated uh, in terms of getting it over the line it does take quite a bit of work so uh, that's why we appreciate everybody listening in and uh, keeping the numbers healthy enough to keep it going uh, we will be back uh, in in the end of next month with another news and analysis and we'll see where some of these stories have landed in that time. But in the meantime, we will return to our referendum series. All that's left for me this week is to wish you all well and hope that your entry back into the real world from lockdown begins to go smoothly and let's hope the vaccine rollout continues uh, for all our sakes. Until then, take care and be safe.